Thank you for joining us today for the WAM Leaders FY 2022 results webinar. My name is Camilla Cox and I'm a Senior Corporate Affairs Advisor here at Wilson Asset Management. To begin today's call, I'll quickly recap on the FY 2022 result and then I'll pass to the WAM Leaders team, Matt, John and Anna, to begin their presentation. The investment portfolio performed strongly during the financial year, outperforming the S&P ASX 200 by a record 16.2% increasing 9.7% over the year, while the index fell 6.5%. The Board of Directors declared a fully franked full-year dividend of $0.08 cents per share, representing a 14.3% increase on the previous year. The annualised dividend yield is 5.3%, and the grossed-up dividend yield is 7.6% on yesterday's closing price of $1.505. The profits reserve at 30 June was 36.3 cents per share, representing 4.5 years of dividend coverage. I'll now pass to lead portfolio manager, Matt Haupt, to begin the team's presentation. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Camilla. Rising interest rates, high inflation, geopolitical shocks, how do you invest in markets like these? Um, we're gonna try and walk through our approach on how we do that. But my name is Matthew Haupt, joined with John Ayew and Anna Milne, um, we are the WAM leaders too. So I thought, like, we'll, we'll touch on like where we are in markets, but really to, to work out where we are in markets, you've got to go back in history and look like why are we in the position we're in? And it's really uh, a choice we had around COVID. We had the choice of either taking a lot of pain, you know, hardship, um, severe economic uh, impacts, or we could have stimulated like what we did. But there is a price for doing that, and we're filling that now. So what we had was zero interest rates, a fiscal push where people were handed money, and we had a disruptive supply chain, and that's why we've got inflation now. All those factors which we had which helped equity markets are moving in the opposite direction now. So the fiscal impulse, which is what the government is spending, is coming back, interest rates are rising, and inflation is still very high. So the ingredients for risk assets aren't great, um, but we've seen this before. We know how markets work and how, how cycles work. And we're, we think we're around 75% through the current cycle, um, which is more, more how the equity market looks. So the economy is always backward looking um, in the market's eyes. So um, we think over the next period, probably around three to six months, we'll probably see the lows and then we think the policy direction will change. And the reason why we think the policy direction will change is because the, the markets we're looking at, there are a lot of signs of stress. So we look at the, the yield curve, which is the difference between short-term rates and long-term rates, and they're all inverted. We've got credit markets with credit spreads high, and so there, there is signs of stress in the market. We've got rising US dollar, which is a real sign that people are, there's a, there's a a flood of people trying to get US dollars, uh, which is a sign of stress. So um, we've got a lot of conditions of stress there, but the the counteract to that is we've got central banks hiking into this. So we are on a collision course, but it really depends on when these central banks back off. And we think they'll back off in about three months um, from here because the underlying data is so weak and there are so many signs of, of underlying stress. So we think they'll they'll pause. Um, we think they're trying to get to 
um, above neutral rates now, which is neutral rate is uh, sort of like a, a theater, theoretical rate where you assume the economy will be fine at that level of interest rates. The central bankers are saying we want to go past neutral and really pull down demand through the economy. So when you look at that, that ingredient for risk assets isn't great. We go into a contractionary phase, which we think we're in at the moment. But within the contractionary phase, there is a lot of sectors where you can still perform. So I guess when, you know, you throw all those ingredients in, you know, how do you perform in this market? And I guess I'll, I'll hand over to John now, who who talk through the, the practical implications of, you know, what we talked about then. How do you transfer that into a portfolio? Thank you, Matt. It's very easy to hear what Matt just said and get very negative on markets. And I guess that's the dilemma that we face. The consensus view and the market view is we're going to go into this spiral down. I guess the reality is our job is to look one year forward and actually work out what's priced in markets, where people are gravitating to, and what ultimately is going to be the conclusion of what's happening in the macro environment. The other thing I'll mention is that everyone's become a macro expert over the last six months. <laughs> This is part of our bread and butter. It's part of our process. We're always looking forward. Others have just become in vogue. You, you speak to any tech company right now and they're explaining their underperformance from by rates. This is in vogue and our job is always to look, look around and look forward and look what's, what's coming next. And the reality is, as Matt said, it's a game of chicken. Now, central banks are trying to navigate and control inflation with the one blunt instrument that they have. And we need to recognise that within the portfolio. That will come to an end. And when it comes to an end, you can see the skittish nature of the market. Even today, when you hear small little anecdotes around a slowing of rate rises, not even a, a stopping of rate rises, any positive news is going to be well received because that's the very direction of the market. It's very bearish. So within the portfolio, we need to be conscious of this when we construct it. We need to try to identify those opportunities where people will be gravitating towards next. Right here, right now, people are scared of any of the cyclical names. They're scared of property. They're scared of the building sectors, we're attracted to those and we're starting to deploy capital into those spaces. We acknowledge it's early, but that's okay. We've been, we, we're always typically early and, and by the time the cycle turns, which as Matt said, could be three to six months away, we'll hopefully have those full weight in those positions to capture that, 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 that performance at inflection points. Where we sit today, if you look at the last reporting season, the earnings look robust, they look sound, but given the rapid rate that the rapid rate that rate, uh, rate rises have occurred, we have not seen the impacts of these rate rises on the consumer and on corporates. The trailing nature of rate rises on mortgages means that the full impact won't be seen until around Christmas time. So once we'll see consumer spend back off, we'll see corporates debt debt increase, uh, the cost of debt I should say will increase. We're seeing uh, electricity spike. We're seeing everything, uh, fuel spike. That full impact will not come through until the back end of this year and will flow through to corporate earnings next year. Next year, we'll start seeing government responses. So you kind of try to marry all that up and what does it mean? We could potentially go into a Goldilocks phase where Matt says interest rates stop. We're in, the, we're in, we're in that medium part of the cycle where it's okay and we come out the other side. Equally, if central bankers do decide to get aggressive and push the rates well beyond the beyond that, that comfort range, there could be more pressure on the economy. So where we sit today, we need to build a balanced portfolio, acknowledging the risks both ways and try to identify stocks and sectors that we think have their own strengths and characteristics to outperform in all market conditions. 
sectors that we like and we continue to like are the insurance space. Uh, and Anna will touch on that in a little bit more. We continue to like oil and gas and in particular Santos. But we're starting to deploy capital in uh, in, in areas where there's discount to net tangible assets. The REIT space is becoming attractive. And I don't think you've ever heard us say that before. <laughs> we're starting to deploy uh, capital into the REIT space. Stocks like James Hardy's and Reliance, these, are, these things are at cyclical lows even before we start to see the downturn. So there's a lot of opportunities presenting, uh, I guess, but the one thing that will continue to characterise our portfolio is the quality. And it's the quality, it's the quality company within each, within each sector and within each segment of the market. With that, um, I'll pass it over to Anna, who can talk about a few stocks that we really like. Thanks, John. So three names that I thought I might touch on are CSL Limited, uh, Insurance Australia Group and Treasury Wine Estates. And there are a couple of commonalities across these three names that team leaders love. So the first one, as Johnny mentioned, is quality. All three of these names are the highest quality names in their respective sectors. CSL is arguably one of the highest quality names on the ASX, given its defensive earnings, its earnings profile over the coming decade is, you know, 10% compounding every year, and its management team is proven. Uh, IAG is the owner of the brand NRMA, which is one of Australia's most trusted brands. And then Treasury Wine Estates, they own Penfolds, which I think, I think speaks for itself, uh, but has a portfolio that is just unable to be replicated. And the psychology of investing in these quality names is that when share prices decline, it's seen as an opportunity to get these high quality names on sale. So that's some of the reasons why we like the quality names. Uh, another commonality across those three names is that they've all been through tough periods over the last couple of years and their turnarounds are just starting to happen. So CSL, uh, we've spoken about this before, but they've had trouble collecting plasma over the last couple of years, given everyone's been staying at home. They've now uh, reached back to pre-COVID levels and they're just getting started. IAG, uh, they've had a litany of, of issues really, started with the bushfires, uh, moved on to business interruption claims, a new management team, and then if anyone is dialing in from New South Wales or, or Queensland, pretty familiar with rain recently uh, and the floods that have been occurring. And then Treasury Wine, they have had to redirect a lot of their product that was destined for China following the tariffs introduced in I think it was November 2020. So when companies have been through tough periods and they're coming out of them, it's the perfect recipe for us. You have the earnings upside and then you also have the sentiment. So that's uh, positive from both evaluation and an earnings, which translates to higher share prices. So in interest of keeping it brief, I thought I'd touch on one point from each of those three names that really stood out to us uh, in our recent meetings with their management teams. So. TWE, Treasury Wine, uh, their country of origin uh, diversification story is just getting started. They recently acquired Frank Family Vineyards. That integration in the US is going really well. They continue to acquire wineries in France. Uh, they had their first French vintage launch last month. And then the China country of origin uh, is an exciting opportunity over the coming years. Uh, CSL, we spent a lot of our meeting talking about the Rika device, which is the new plasmapheresis device, when you're sitting in the chair at the donor centre, uh, it's the machine that's used to extract your plasma. So this has got a number of benefits. Uh, there's the yield upside, there's the time in bed significantly reduced. Uh, it's a lot more comfortable for patients. It's a lot less time consuming for staff. And there's a lot of ESG benefits in terms of the consumables that are used. Uh, and then IAG, uh, the main point from our meeting with IAG was around the 
NRMA national rollout that's starting to gather pace. Uh, NRMA is very strong in the likes of New South Wales, but doesn't really have a presence in Victoria or WA, and that's just beginning to take off. And then also what's really going to move the IAG share price from here is the intermedi intermediated uh, business turnaround, and they've made a few key personnel highs, so we should see that over the coming 12 months as well. Uh, Thanks, Anna. Um, I guess, you know, after the, the conversation there, just I, I guess what we'd like to convey is, like, there's a bit of grey hair here. Um, Anna, not so much, another 20 years maybe. So I guess we've been through these cycles before. Um, you know, our largest investment uh, personally is in WAM leaders as well. We're, we're all aligned. Um, and, and I think the, the message is there's no need to panic. The, the cycle is quite predictable. The timing is harder. But I think important with John's point as well is the, the market is operating in the extremes in the tails of risk. At the moment, it's either boom or bust. There is actually a scenario where growth stays quite solid or, you know, quite decent in the 2 to 3% GDP growth and inflation moderates and policy stays where it is. So there is there is a potential here of almost like um, just, you know, below-trend growth and equity values will be okay. So, um, yeah, I, I think the the key takeout is there is actually a path out of this and, and we've seen this before. So with that, I'll hand over to Camilla now. Um, who will go through the questions that have come along. Thanks, Matt. And thanks to everyone who's been sending through questions. If we don't get to yours on the call, someone will be in touch um, afterwards. So, Matt, we'll start with you. This one's from Alexander. He said, following on from events recently, such as Jackson Hole and recent RBA speeches, will rates continue to rise or are we close to the end of a rate hiking cycle? Yeah, it's, it's probably the most uh, debated topic at the moment. Obviously, Jackson Hole was an event where they try to push back against the market because they all they all were almost frustrated with the market. They were like, we're trying to signal that we're going to hike into um, this inflation problem, but the market was discounting that, and it, and it was almost a sense of frustration. So Jackson Hole was an important signalling event. Uh, the recent RBA meeting was an important signalling event as well. So they are trying to push into the market and slow demand down through tightening. Um, but obviously, that's that's the short end of the curve. You've got to look across the the whole, um, you know, the range across the 3, 5, 10, 30-year parts of the curve too. And, I mean, there's some interesting developments there where we're starting to get a bit of a steepening of the curve where um, some of the long-end rates are moving up and the short end um, not moving as fast. So there is a, probably... I guess the terminal rates in Australia are probably too high. That's where the market thinks Australia will finish the interest rate hiking cycle. We think they will finish at 3%. The market is currently at 3.78%. So we think the Australian market um, is probably a little bit too aggressive in the rate hike cycle. And then in the US, we probably think, you know, they're going to go a bit harder because the impact of interest rates is a lot different in the US. In Australia, we have a variable housing market. So whatever happens, any change in the interest rate has a direct impact on the, the housing stock. In the US, it's a fixed market. So it's only that incremental buyer that has the impact. So Australia should have a lower terminal rate. So we think, yes, we are towards the end of the rate height cycle. We think they will finish lower than the market has implied, which will generally be better for equities. So you just need to time that when those expectations 
come out of the forward market, equities will go up. So we, we're watching this point and it will, it will really be around if there's a credit event or inflation falls faster than expected or the labour market starts falling apart. So, I mean, they're the three key things we're watching. Thanks, Matt. John, we'll go over to you now. This one is from James. He said, can you run us through what sectors or stocks you think are crowded and which are presenting the opportunities? Great, thank you. Uh, thanks, James, for the question. I'll answer it in a, in, in, a, in a more relatable way. What's crowded right now is bearishness. Uh, everyone likes to be negative. So if you, if you consider that, that people are starting to gravitate or have been gravitating towards um, defensive earnings, uh, predictable cash flows, so you think about the Woolworths, the Telstra's, uh, those defensive names is where everyone's kind of crowded. And the reason being is everyone thinks we're going into recession. So what you try to do is identify those recession-proof stocks. That is where, I'm, where it's crowded. So being crowded or being consensus isn't always wrong, though. Um, it, could be, it could well be that we need to hold these stocks for the next six months and it might be a little bit early to go into to other segments. I'd also call out other areas, if you want to kind of call out other areas that might be crowded, I'd say the lithium sector is probably crowded. Um, you know, it just goes up to 6 or 7% in a day, like they did today. Um, so I'd probably call that out. And, you know, potentially some of the growth small caps, some of the growth small caps that use as growth proxies, um, that's probably crowded space. I guess on the other side of it, what's presenting as value, what's presenting as opportunity, I guess to, to what Matt and I and Anna have been speaking about, um, if we kind of consider the backdrop that the market, the rates may kind of abate a little bit and wage growth continues to go the way it is, the consumer could be well positioned and housing in particular may not be as negative on a global standpoint as, as feared. So stocks like James Hardy's and Reliance, which are trading on the low teen multiples uh, for market leading positions, um, strong strong margins, you know, those are names that are standing out. Even in the, and if we go to the, the, the more conventional REIT space, Dexas and Stockland, those are, those are some standout names that are presenting as value. And a bit sideways to that, Star and Seek and even some of the iron ore names remain robust value names. So I'd say that crowded are those defensive names and, and we're, happy to go, uh, we're happy to go the other way in some of those opportunities that we just called out. Thanks, John. Anna, this one is from Cameron and it's for you. He's asked, what were the core holdings that contribute, contributed to Wanleader's outperformance in FY 2022? Sure, thanks for the question. So I think at a high level, our result was um, a function of, you know, it was a real tale of two halves. The first half, we were uh, owned a lot more of the cyclical names. And then in the second half, we moved a lot more defensive. But specifically thinking about stocks uh, of the resources, South 32 and Oz Minerals uh, provided us uh, performance of the financials. We had NAB, CBA and Macquarie. And there are also a couple of takeover bids, uh, so Crown and Blackstone. So Crown was just trading at such a deep discount to its net asset backing that we thought it was uh, absolutely right for a takeover bid. And then secondly was the oil search Santos tie-up. And we've been proponents of that deal from the start and think that the portfolio of the, the two, asset, uh, two companies combined under Kevin Gallagher uh, is fantastic. So those are some of the names. And it's still too cheap Santos though. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Uh, Matt, this one's for you. It's from Jen. In the recent result, the portfolio held over 28% in financials as at 30 June. What opportunities are you seeing here across the team? Uh, thanks, Jen. And the one caveat here is I'll say when the evidence changes, we change. So 
we we move the portfolio around. I guess that's another thing with with leaders where we do change when the evidence changes. Um, with financials, we've really been overweight, uh, really, as the insurance sector for a while, on the premise that interest rate hikes will start feeding through, and they are a little less susceptible to the cycle, like the banks. Obviously, banks have exposure to you know bad debt cycles, whereas um, you know insurance companies that interest rate feeds through to the bottom line easier. So we've been overweight insurers. We're underweight Aussie banks at the moment. Um, so when you see the the total of twenty eight percent, that mix changes a lot. We are starting to get a little bit more constructive on the Australian banks. So um, you know there was talk today. Phil Lowe was talking about Attica Foundation. And there was hints of maybe the interest rate hikes aren't going to be as large as, as first thought. So he's trying to—he's almost trying to walk back the uh, RPA meaning. So um, that will be beneficial to the Australian banks because there won't be as much damage done to the Australian economy if that happens. But we're still we're still walking a very tight path here, whether we go too far. So the financials will swing around a lot, but we are overweight the insurance sector and underway at the Aussie banks at the moment. Thanks, Matt. John, we'll go to you. This is from Peter. He's asked, what is the current cash position of the portfolio and do you see this changing anytime soon? Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, maybe a little bit of uh, background how that we how the process works with WAM leaders. Um, cash for us is never really an indication of how bullish or bearish we are. Cash for us is just a, a tool we use um, based on the opportunities that we see ahead of us. Even if we think the market is going down, we still have to, uh, mechanisms and uh, stocks and, and then the number of uh, opportunities that we see that we can deploy that capital to. So Leaders has been run slightly different to, say, WAM Capital, which they use uh, more cash as a, as a defensive mechanism uh, when, when things get a little bit tougher. But for us, you'll typically see our cash run anywhere between 2 and 8%, very rarely do you see you get above 10. Um, and only in extreme circumstances where you see us uh, pull that cash lever where we think there is no other alternative but to sell. Uh, and, we'll, and we're happily to, you know, we, we'll use that flexibility that we have um, to the benefit of shareholders and we'll go to 20, 30, 40%, whatever it's, whatever's required. But where we stand today, it's somewhere between that, you know, 3 and 5% cash and we're pretty comfortable where it is. Thanks, John. We'll actually stick with you to talk about Ramsey Healthcare. What are your thoughts on the company, given that KKR recently withdrew the all cash offer? Okay, uh, thank you for that question. It's uh, it's fairly topical, and um, I guess I'll, I'll take the gloves off here and, and, and give a pretty direct answer to this. It's been a long time since the commencement of this transaction to where we are today, and you know you can point fingers at, at both sides, and where we sit is that ultimately. Uh, there have been prohibitors to get a deal complete. But what, what we what we do know is that KKR, where they stand today, they've provided a hybrid offer um, based on the best information that they've had access to. And based on that offer, and, you know, I, our belief as a team is that Ramsey should engage um, with KKR and try to complete this transaction, uh, potentially a slightly higher cash component, and our view would be, $81 is probably a fair mechanism of cash, uh, plus the Ramsey Sante script, um, because there is embedded value in that Ramsey Sante script, which is the, the French hospital provider. So 
we would encourage the board of Ramsey and we encourage the management of Ramsey to uh, complete this transaction because we think that is fair. Um, $81, let's call it $82, whatever the number might be, plus the Ramsey Sante. Um, and remembering that the transaction that's being proposed is $88 for retail shareholders or small parcel holders of sub 5,000 units. And that's looking after a lot of you guys who, who may potentially have followed um, leaders into, into Ramsey. An $88 transaction for small parcel holders is to the best interest of those shareholders. So we need to treat all shareholders here equally. So us, you know, we'll call ourselves the big boys who own a material lick of that stock. We're happy to take uh, that, that offer. And the foundation, who is the largest shareholder, should be also willing to take that offer. So we'd encourage the board uh, to engage and to come to some sort of conclusion on this one. Thank you, John. Anna, we'll go over to you now. Could you talk through a few of the positions that the team have added to following uh, good results recently? Absolutely. So we really enjoy results season, um, given that so much more information comes to light. The market tends to have quite a short memory, so we have a short list of names that we think delivered exceptional results and either bounced and have come back or have further to go, and we track these names very closely. So there's the three names that I spoke about previously, so that's CSL Limited, Treasury Wine Estates, and Insurance Australia Group, and then a few other names. So Qantas was very unloved in th into the result, uh, which makes sense if anyone has been travelling domestically over the last few months. No <laughs> one's been loving that experience. Uh, but they say that operational issues are improving uh, from this month onwards uh, and forward bookings are looking really strong and there's a structural demand-supply relationship that's very much so in favour of Qantas and they're continuing to push price. And so we think that the setup over the next 12 months is looking very strong for Qantas. So that's one of the names. Another name is REA. Again, they were unloved into the result. Uh, people correlate uh, listing volumes with house prices and REA did a really good job at the result of disproving this and also they have a really strong price and yield uh, levers that can be pulled so we, we like REA and the last name I was going to call out uh, was A2 Milk so the CEO has made a lot of brave decisions recently to try and turn A2 Milk around and green shoots are starting to appear um, so the Daigo channel is now economical and they have price and margin. And it's just one of these defensive names that has been in the doghouse. So we do like Asian milk. Thanks, Anna. John, we'll go to you now. Uh, Jeffrey's asked, can you please talk us through the rationale behind leaders holding in Star Entertainment? Okay. Uh, thanks, Jeffrey. And um, Anna kind of touched on it earlier. Uh, if you look at the playbook that eventuated with Crown, we see a lot of similarities between the two. For us, the starting point is that if you look at Star and look at what assets it holds and look at what, uh, when they talk about a, a REIT company and an operating company, so if you split the asset, you split the company into two, the land holdings and then the operating companies, you see significant uplift in valuation. So that's our starting point. At $2.66 or 67, which I'm quite sure where it closed today, uh, we see around 25% 30 or to 30% upside just purely to the property valuation and that equals zero value attributed to the operating company and the licences. Um, so where we stand today is it's a bit of a long data one. We're not going to get a quick resolution on this one and we're happy to remain patient. But if you look at what happened with uh, Crown and the valuation, if you apply the valuations that Blackstone are willing to pay for Crown, you can easily build a case to see Star trading north of $4. 
That's not to say that the, all the issues around governance um, and around the licences are behind them. Absolutely, it's not. But we think the intrinsic value in the stock today is there uh, relative to its asset value. So we're happy to build a very strong position. Uh, I think you know we've been buying, and I'm happy to admit this, the last few days in the in the mid 250s and the in the low 260s, we've been adding to that position. Um, you know, if we we're going to crystal ball it, it makes still makes a lot of sense for Crown and Star to get together. Um, the synergies only grow given the extra regulation costs and oversight costs that both casino operators are going to have to uh, face over time. So I think it still makes a lot of sense for those two to get together. And I guess the other concern around the earnings purely for Star, if you look at what's uh, what's what's playing out in the in the in the Queensland market, Star is going from strength to strength, and domestically here in Sydney, uh, that's where we're based. Um, there's been a lot of fear around Crown taking market share away from Star. The evidence to date has suggested quite the opposite. Star continues to trade really strongly uh, and Crown's been slightly weaker than they anticipated. So from that standpoint, we think all the negatives are priced in and none of the positives. So that's hence why we hold it. Thanks very much, John. Matt, we'll go to you. And this one is from Ron. Uh, Ron has asked, what are your predictions for the price of iron ore? <laughs> This, this changes by the, um, the... There's three sessions in iron ore, the morning, <laughs> afternoon and night session. Um, the night session is incredibly volatile. So what probably the most useful thing to say here is the medium-term forecast. And, and we're, again, going to be contrarian here. We think China might be OK. Everyone's thinking it's in absolute basket case at the moment. Um, and, and that's true. But that's really a self-inflicted um, issue at the moment. It's really around not opening the economy up post, well, during COVID, um, you know, outbreak period. So it is actually self-inflicted. Their economy could be growing a lot faster. And what we're seeing in the past is the PBOC, which controls the um, monetary policy in China, don't stimulate when there's COVID around. So we think... Two things will happen here. They'll either, either abandon the COVID zero policy or they'll work, just work their way through it and be more tolerant on outbreaks. And once this happens, we're almost at the point now where we're starting to see the government step in and bail out some of the, the property developers. So we have reached the pain threshold, but there is that final lever pushing it down and accelerating hasn't been done yet. And meanwhile, the iron ore market's held up remarkably well. So rest of the world, iron ore market demand is probably rolling over, but we think China can take up the slack. So medium-term iron ore, if it was $750-$800 over the next 12 months, we'd be very happy. So um, we remain quite constructive until we see evidence otherwise. Thanks, Matt. John, Brian's asked, when will the long-short positions of AAG be sold off if the merger proceeds? Uh, yeah, look, thanks for that question. Uh, in short, uh, we're still working through that, but our expectation is, uh, and our preference is, and I guess we're probably lifting the leaders to take all cash, but given, and we've had a look at the AEG portfolio over time, um, we're pretty comfortable with uh, a lot of those positions and the liquidity available to us. So um, in, any of, in any event or any environment where we'll be able to navigate it and actually generate a positive outcome for our shareholders. So we're agnostic to the way it comes. Our preference would be cash, uh, but if not, we have the tools to, to kind of navigate it. Thanks, John. 
Matt, this is from Eden, who says, congratulations on the portfolio performance and the active strategy style used. Are you proposing to follow this strategy in the future, especially in the foreshadowed volatility? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Like, our strategy is our strategy. It doesn't really um, depend upon the market environment. Uh, we have a specific way we manage money. Um, and I guess something that you probably don't see is, like, we work in the office from call it from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock, 5.30, but our work doesn't end there. We're, we're up all night and we're quite guilty of it. Like, we've got a group chat, we'll be like, we're watching, you know, economic releases in the US and then watching the market reactions up at 4 or 5 o'clock, watching US close. Um, we love this job and everyone here loves this job and we are so focused and we're all aligned, we're all big shareholders. Um, so our strategy is our strategy. Um, and it should perform for all market environments as we are focusing on on the macro, you know, identifying stocks and then really doing a lot of work around the flow, um, uh, flow dynamics and market positioning. So um, regardless of the market environment, our job is to perform, no excuses. So, I mean, that's not going to change. Great. Thanks, Matt. Uh, this one's for you as well. It's from Ashok. He says, are commodities in a super cycle? Uh, I, I'd say definitely not. Um, but there is a caveat there. I mean, we had supply shocks. I think we're in a broader good period for commodities, but not a super cycle. I mean, for me, a super cycle, and, and probably everyone else is the same, is when China industrialised and you have this enormous demand boom. Um, well, the, the next potential is India, I guess. I mean, everyone's pinning their hopes on India. And we're starting to see some really good signs out of India, but for me and for everyone else, it's really a demand-driven story. We, it's a, like a, a massive change where you, you're going from rural villages into mass industrial urbanisation uh, programs. So I think we're in a different regime where commodity scarcity of commodities is definitely around, and we're seeing that from like the lack of um, investment from the GFC period really is this why we're in the position we are in now. There will be a supply response, but that's generally eight to ten years. So I'd say we are in a good spot for commodities. But for me and for everyone here, a, a super cycle is really a demand-driven urbanisation story, which I don't think we're in at the moment. Okay, thanks, Matt. This one is for, for John. It's from Paul. He said, if the fund has cash available for future returns to shareholders, how do you establish the dividend payout percentage each year to shareholders? Uh, thanks, Paul. And I wish Jeff was here to answer that one because that's a bold question. Um, our job is first and foremost to manage the money on behalf of our shareholders. Uh, and the dividend policy is something that's set um, by the board members, chairman and all the independents. So uh, it, 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 yeah, like any company, uh, listed or unlisted, you look at the consistency of earnings, you look at what uh, is available to pay out shares and take a look at what future cash flows that will be generated. So, um, uh, as an investment team, all we can do is try to generate more and more earnings for shareholders and let the board handle uh, those payout ratios to ensure that there is that objective of, of, of WAM leaders is that, that steadily rising stream of fully frank dividends. Um, so that's, I guess, probably all we can answer. But next time you uh, speak to Jeff or Seam, you can pin him down and ask him more detail. Sounds good. Thanks, John. 
Uh, this one is from Anne for the team. He asks, uh, why are you keen to keep selling off Australian companies? Why do you think people are keen to sell off Australian companies to private equity like Ramsey? I can take that. Yeah. It, it's, it's, look, it's, if you look at what Ramsey is, it's undervalued in Australia. If the Australian stock market isn't willing to recognise the value of its assets, uh, the infrastructure that it provides, uh, the, the, the fundamental service that it provides to Australia as a whole, then look, our job is to be fairly pragmatic and that's take the best offer that's presented in front of us today. The reality is if there isn't a deal done, uh, Ramsey trades significantly lower than where it is today. Um, but over time, it will retrace and we'll probably get that $80, $88 over the next two to three years. Um, in other circumstances like Crown, you know, these things go away for a period of time. And if you consider what private equity do, they do what they do is they take these things behind closed doors, clean up the portfolios, typically sell off the property and bring back the operating businesses. Uh, our expectation is that if Ramsey were to go into KKR's hands, uh, they would probably sell off the property um, optimise uh, the operating businesses, probably acquire more businesses globally, and then eventually return the operating businesses to the listed market, as we expect Crown to happen eventually, if they, you know, they'll sell off the property and then you'd have the operating business come to Australia. So, yeah, our job as equity managers is to basically make the most we can from shareholders. Uh, we need to be agnostic, as how, agnostic in how we do that. And if someone's willing to pay more than what the market's willing to pay, then we have to then we have to encourage and endorse that. Great, thanks, John. Matt, this is one for you, and it's from Julia. She's asked, are there any uh, plans for a SPP, a share purchase plan, or a rights issue in the next twelve months? Uh, Julia, another great question for Jeff because um, <laughs> that that's really up to the board on how they see the future. But um, like high level comments, you know. Would we like more money? Yes, of course. We think um, as the fund has grown, with um, the performance has increased, um, it allows us more flexibility. So, I mean, yeah, it's really up to the board. I mean, they the one they are the ones who decide on capital allocations. So, um, yeah, really a board decision there. Sorry. Thanks, Matt. I uh, will stick with you. This runs from Stefan. He says. What are your plans to navigate tough conditions in the equity market in FY 2023? Well, I hope that I'm not going to be tough in FY 23, um, but, yeah, so far they have. Um, but like I was saying at the start, it's probably, I think the quarter of uh, FY 23 could actually be good, um, hopefully sooner. But, I mean, like everything, our job is to try and think of how will the next six to 12 months look and position the portfolio for that. At the moment, we do have hope that we will come out of this relatively unscathed, that we don't go down a liquidity crunch um, avenue, which which is a potential. I mean, most things do have probability attached to them. I mean, that is one probability that um, central banks go too hard and we go into a liquidity crunch uh, credit cycle um, which would be terrible. I mean, the, the, the impacts here, we've seen what happens there. I mean, the stock market would fall 20, 30%. Um, but we don't, that's not our base case. So I think the FY23, I mean, we're quite optimistic. We do have a plan. We're implementing the plan. And our plan is that interest rates will go on hold. The, and just to decompose what's happened this year, this calendar year, the stock market fell because interest rates went up and that's a direct impact on 
on the valuations of, of stocks. We are entering in a phase of earnings uh, momentum falling and going negative. So that's the next phase. The stock market isn't actually related back to the economy most of the time. It's around financial conditions, which are, are getting quite tight. So we think there will be a loosening of financial conditions in probably third quarter of, of FY23. So we are quite optimistic of FY23. We don't think it will be as hard, um, but we do acknowledge that there is going to be economic impact felt over the next six to, well, immediately, um, and over the six to nine months from here. The, the economy, there is a lot of pain coming, um, but as for the stock market, we are actually quite constructive um, at the start of the new year. I think to add to that, we have a, to the playbook, we have a number of kind of spreadsheets that we, we track intraday, we track them, you know, every hour in terms of leading indicators, coincident indicators, um, FX, commodities, yeah, um, yeah. indexes, it, and we know that, you know, when this happens, we do this, so yeah, it's it, all pretty set up. Yeah, exactly. It's not like it's finger in the air. We're actually monitoring all these things, um, not 24-7, but pretty close to it. <laughs> Um, but we monitor moves overnight. We monitor FX markets, uh, fixed interest markets, credit markets. Um, it's just a constant feeding information into our process, and that never stops. So um, quite often we're quite early on inflection points, but I'd be really, really upset if we miss inflection points because we are so focused on it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Anna. Anna, we'll stay with you. This one's from Sarah, and she's asked, can you show your view on the banks? Uh, Matt kind of covered the banks previously. Uh, we are underweight at the moment. Uh, do you want to take this Yeah, one I mean, uh, the banking sector, it's, again, like quite often the stock performance isn't related to the actual underlying economic performance, of, of which is a really hard concept to grasp, uh, but sometimes that's the case. And at the moment, money is moving all over the place. Um, everyone is scared of the housing market going to like a, like a, a, a downturn, uh, credit cycle. Um, we don't think that's the case, but we have to acknowledge other people think that's the case. So we are underway. We don't believe that's the case, but we know other people believe that's think, <laughs> think that's the case. So we are underway short term. The, the environment's actually quite good. Uh, rising interest rates are great for banks. The problem is people think the rising interest rates are going to crash the housing market. In reality, we're just taking out the heat out of the housing market, which was put in over the last 18 months. So, like, if you if we went through from uh, 2020 to now, I mean, we're still up on, on housing prices. So, you know, you get these people commenting on month-on-month -month falls of the housing crash. I mean, that's just an alarmist view. Um, could we get there? Yes, 100%. But at the moment, we are just taking the heat out from the from the extraordinary policy we had. So... Um, and it all, but it all depends on the RBA. They have to pause soon. If they keep going, they've got to cause a lot of damage, as we talked about with the uh, variability of the, the mortgage market. So constructive on banks, the net interest margin, which is the driver of profit for banks, is going up. So it's all expectations at the moment. People are fearing a big downturn in property. So, I mean, we think property will fall. Um, but like I said, it's really, really taking the heat off. And for banks, the, the only vintages under pressure would be 2021 20, and 22, um, which would be 
know, 50% of the book, but then if you dive down into the, the data of that 50% of the book, I mean, the low quality part is extremely low. So we don't think it's a, a huge issue at the moment, but we do acknowledge other people think it's an issue. Yeah. Going back to what Johnny mentioned uh, initially on quality, our preferred names are NAB and CBA for those reasons. Yep. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Anna. John, this one's for you from another John. He says he hates to harp on about lithium, but he thinks we're missing the boat. Uh, does it not have a place in the WAM leaders' portfolio? So, John, I, I think when I uh, when I said that, I think I was talking about crowded trades when I said talk about lithium, I equally said that um, sometimes the consensus is right and we do own lithium names. So um, we own Mineral Resources, we own IGO and we own Allchem. Um, and where's farmers? And where's farmers too? So we're, I wouldn't say we're significantly overweight um, benchmark. We're probably in line thereabouts. Um, but what we're saying is that it's pretty. It's getting pretty hot, and uh, lithium isn't as scarce, say, as copper. Uh, so when you look at what what's required for that green energy transition, our strong preference would be copper rather than lithium. Um, and from that standpoint, we own BHP. Uh, Oz Minerals as our preferred place to get exposure to that uh, the green energy transition. The only caution that I'm providing is that if for some reason um, you know a little bit of normalcy comes to market around the expectations around that transition, the reality sets in that it might take longer than than what pundits are predicting today. Lithium is is where everyone's gravitating toward. Um, and given the scarcity of lithium versus that of copper, our preference would be to play copper. But we do own lithium names, so yeah. we're happy to own lithium names. And, and just to add to that, like the the really interesting thing around lithium is the recycling of lithium probably will kick off in about 10 years and you almost have like a self-fulfilling recycling base. But that means you have to get there. But like there is a lot of lithium around, but people aren't taking the investment decision because they know there's a recycling component coming to the market. So you really have to be in the producers at the moment. I don't think we'd really go near the ex exploration companies yep. in lithium because you've got to be in market. You've probably got 10 years to really um, secure uh, volume and get the price for lithium before that recycling component kicks in. So we think the guys that are producing are in a great space um, and a lot of investment might not be come in because of the uncertainty around the recycling component. So we think the existing guys are going to do really well. So agree with your view. Is it Ron? Um, John, sorry. John. So John, 100% agree. Like, yeah, we're with you there. Thanks, John. Thanks, Matt. Uh, who wants to take this one? Ashok says that he's saying there's a green energy transition. Are you taking advantage of this in the portfolio? Yeah, look, we just touched on them briefly around um, lithium and copper is our preferred play. Maybe if we take a different tack because we just covered that space and talk about the other area where green energy transition is coming to the forefront, and that's around uh, our utility bills, our, our gas and electricity bills that we have at home. And yeah, as we stand today, most of the energy provided in Australia comes from uh, coal and gas. And AGL Energy Australia and Origin Energy is predominantly fossil fuel. And there is a significant push um, to move away from those uh, traditional sources of energy to green energy transition. Now, if you take various sources in the market and the talk is that by 2030, and that's not that far away, uh, when you consider we're almost in 23 now, 
the transition from historical sources to green is going to be, in our view, is going to take longer. Reason being is the preferred the preferred method to get that green energy in Australia is wind and solar. And there's a transmission grid, which basically in simple terms is where the energy is generated, how it gets to your house and, and around. There isn't right now the infrastructure in place to move away from how we're getting generating energy today. It's going to take significant investment, not only from governments, but from corporates to move away from where we are now uh, to where we want to be. But at the same time, we need to ensure that there is sustainable energy for all of us to kind of survive. Um, and that sustainable energy can only really come from coal and gas. So the mechanism to move from one form to another will happen, but our view is it's going to take a lot longer than the predicted 2030. The amount of infrastructure, the amount of capital, the amount of people, the amount of resources that are required just to start to commence it, I don't think people have fathomed how, how much it's going to take. And the reality is we need to ensure that what we're getting day-to-day -day continues and as we start to transition that the people who are, you and I and all the shareholders, that we're not paying too much um, to move away from the current uh, system. So uh, I fear that it's going to take a lot longer um, until the government steps in and then who knows what happens then. Thanks, John. We've actually got another one from John while he's got you. He's asked for your view on uranium. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one. I, I guess uranium back in vogue at the moment with the European energy crisis. Um, I guess the stocks have run incredibly hard. Uranium, there is a lot of it around. But this hasn't been a lot of it been mined because of the price. So price is the greatest cure of price, as I always say. <laughs> so um, we're not playing it directly at the moment. Um, yeah, I, we, I we guess it's... it's, it's, it's yeah, we don't have great options in our space and they've really run really hard. So, um, yeah, for us to take a significant bet on uranium at the moment, um, the risk reward's just not there and we don't have the options available for us in the in the 200. Thanks, Matt. Uh, and that's our last one today. So I'll just pass back to you for any closing words. Now, I'd just like to thank all the shareholders. Um, you know, we've had a, a great couple of years. You know, we, we aim to continue that, of course. You know, we're, we're working incredibly hard. Um, we're all big shareholders and leaders, so we're all, our incentives are aligned. Um, so, yeah, just, just thank you for the con continuous support. And uh, we're going to keep working hard to get you performance up and um, get those dividends coming through as well. So thank you.